And he said, yeah, I had a young player run into a, a problem. There was a situation and in order to get further with whatever the thing was, you had to solve a puzzle. And so the character was like, you know, like, like, what do I need to roll to, to know how to solve the puzzle? And the dungeon master was like, keep rolling those dice and I'm gonna go get a drink. And then when I get back, <laughs> nothing will have changed because you don't get to roll dice to solve this problem. You have to figure it out on your own, you know? And, and, uh, uh, and so that's the difference is like all these lore roles and, you know, roles to know what you don't know. And that that is just like video game on paper. And that's, that's part of the problem is that designers, a lot of the designers that are designing RPGs now for the big companies are coming out of the video game industry. So they're gamifying everything like a computer program. Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm here with Griffith Morgan today. And Griffith is one half of the uh, Fellowship of the Thing and uh, the uh, one of the creators behind the Secrets of Blackmore documentary. And his most recent project is The Lost Dungeons of Tonisburg as he's holding yep. up there. And uh, we're gonna get into all of that today. And uh, first of all, but uh, welcome Griffith. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm really psyched actually. Um, I don't really know, I don't think I know very much about you. You kind of showed up on the radar maybe a month ago. And you were like, hey, you wanna do a show with me? I was like, okay. Well, I you know. maybe maybe you forgot, but I did the uh, the documentary on the uh, world's largest game store, the Century Box. Oh, in yeah, Alberta. And okay, uh, yeah. And you were I talked to so many people, you know. Yeah, I for, unless I know your face, like yeah. now I know what you look like more. <laughs> and so, and so I don't know your name. I'll never remember it. Yeah. So don't tell me what it is. And so, anyways, you were instrumental, and I kind of missed the deadline, and you put in a good word for me to get me uh, after the deadline to get me into the Gen Con Film Festival. So I th thank you for that. And I, I said that publicly on uh, uh, Twitter. I said thank you, and you said, well, just pay it forward. And I've always uh, said, well, I'd love to have yeah. you on the show, and now is a great time. You know, that's the thing, is I just really am wanting to create, as much as I see people talk about things like um, community and gaming and such, um, I don't see people actually like community is a really simple thing, which is kind of like, I got your back. Yeah. And so, um, and that just to me means like, if I see somebody just post their latest game that they're selling on drive through or, or a Kickstarter, I'll just retweet it and I'll make sure I'll just be like, you know, like I'm doing it. You got to do it too. We just got to Like, it's your job to retweet this as well. You may not want this, but somebody, you know, will, and it's going to help the person who's doing this thing. And they're tiny, you know, they're not going to make millions of dollars, but it'd be kind of cool if they could, I don't know, sell 200 copies of their game or whatever they're doing, you know. And, and, and honestly, um, that's one of the reasons why I started my channel was to explore game design, offer tips from experts uh, in their field, as well as highlight some of the lesser known uh, designers out there. And I just finished off, uh, you probably didn't see, but I finished off doing Hello Zine. I did a zine review of a small creator every day. Uh, okay, yeah. I know so, the name, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, but anyways, enough about me. Let's get on to. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of yeah. fun to talk about you too. You oh, know? Well. I mean, maybe you're doing something cool and we don't even know about Every, it, right? Everybody on the channel is sick of me. So let's, yeah. let's talk about the talent. No, but I, you know, you got me going on that whole, like uh, the idea of community and all that. Yeah. And that was kind of one of the things I've been like, I don't know. It's just like, you know, it's up to you to amplify all these indies. You know, if you're part of, if you consider yourself part of this community, 
the way you are part of the community is you amplify the indies that are working on stuff and um and just try to stay positive and don't be nasty and mean i mean i'm really sarcastic and a lot of people misunderstand my sarcasm as me being mean but i'm just clowning around most of the time and laughing a lot you know yeah. but um anyway yeah let's go on we want to talk about gaming sure. i think well, let's let's so go, let's go back. Like I said, you did the Secrets of Blackmore documentary, which is a huge success. But tell us just the synopsis of that documentary, and then how that led into your new project. Um, the synopsis of the documentary is basically that a bunch of guys get together. They're into wargaming, and they're searching for a way. This is before computers and stuff like that, and it's all on a tabletop with miniatures. And they're searching for ways to instill the sense of the fog of war into their war games. And so they start implementing all these, these methods for fog of war. And it, it ends up evolving into what ends up being D&D. I mean, they, they invented it. Gary didn't invent role-playing. He didn't, he didn't know what the role-playing was. They, I mean, I see people try to sort of, uh, you know, go back into history and adjust things like, well, we ran this game and there was this thing and that thing. And it's like, yeah, but they weren't role-playing. I mean, they were role-playing, but they weren't role-playing to the extent that Arneson and his group were doing it because they were just like off the hook. And so that was like early, early formative primordial days of what role-playing was. And you interviewed all mm -hmm. these folks that participated um, in retrospect, looking back upon that time. And they, yeah. shared, they shared the creation story, basically, of role-playing. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was kind of the thing, is that we were really, or we, I, I wrote it and, and edited it and directed it. And so, um, which is pretty amazing, because we did it in, like, six and a half years, which if you're, if you know anybody that does, like, long-form documentaries, they will all tell you it took them 10 years to make their first documentary. So we did it in about two-thirds of that time. And, um anyway so i lost the thread there but we just went out and yeah we went and talked to them and 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 really investigated what they were doing and and then sort of presented you know that's where i come in as the writer and narrator is i sort of explain what they're doing in a way that you can understand it because a lot of times they don't even have the words to explain it um like one of the things that i always my sister was was the assistant editor and um, she just finally one day, she was like, Griff, you gotta look at what the women are saying. They're saying like really cool stuff. And I was like, Whoa. you know, like I'm just, I'm a war gamer. So I'm talking, I'm watching the war gaming stuff and it's all the dudes. So I went and watched Gail Gaylord's interview. And she, at one point she said, you know, it was, it was all make-believe and that was the best part. And I was like, oh my God, wait a minute. She's the one that's saying what it really is, right? And so, um, so that's kind of, I don't know. I mean, it was interesting that interplay, you know, and realizing that what they were saying, like the the women weren't necessarily the people driving the, the games, but they were there, if not even in the games, they were on the sidelines watching what the guys were doing. And so they were able to sort of interpret it in, in a much clearer manner than the guys that were involved in it because they were too close to it, you know. And then throughout the documentary, uh, the Tonisberg or Tonis Borg uh, dungeon came up right. on occasion and uh, people had thought that was lost, right? Yeah, that's one of those weird ones. I, I see, I wasn't aware of it because um, I'm not really, I wasn't really that tied into the research community until I started doing the movie. 
and there's just so much stuff to learn just to get up to speed um i remember once talking to john peterson and i made this assertion and he was like dude that's old we've already debunked that like five years ago you got to get up to speed you know and i was sort of like you jerk you know you're 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 being mean to me and so i went back and i was like okay he's right i gotta bone up on this stuff and not come off as a like idiot you know um and so um yeah i mean there's just so much out there i mean that's the thing is people want this whole story to be sort of tucked into this little neat little package you're talking about a lot of different phases in the creation of role-playing games um there's sort of the there's the invention stage there's sort of a development stage once they know what they've sort of invented they're developing this um and they come up with multiple role-playing games it's not just i think that people are like that's these tags like role-playing game doesn't even fit the game and you know you know it, it doesn't make sense calling it a role-playing game because that's not what it is and um but anyway um so yeah so you have a development stage and then you have like uh you know they're prototyping and then they're kind of past prototyping and they're 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 like just trying to develop the actual product, which is where Gary Gygax comes in. Um, he was really essential for that stage. And, and as the editor, he kind of drove what, what it became in terms of like, well, these little guys here. You know, oh, you still got um, them, hey? Yeah. Yeah, these are like a, a white box set. Yeah. So they're not, the, you know, they're not worth a million dollars. They're just, this is what I played with as a kid. Like you can even see, I think my scrawly, yeah, look at that. <laughs> my scrawly signature is in there with morgan m morgan oh, right on. my my 14 year old signature it's hilarious yeah um, out of, out of anyway, curiosity you said you wouldn't you know the role-playing game title what would you call it if uh if it isn't well well i would define it by i mean that was one of the things that i in the film do um is i think it's important to get some sort of definitions for things as far as so that you can like uh um trying to look I get too complicated with words let's use a simple word let's you need to understand what the different things are so that you can define what the thing is like so you can measure it you know um I guess I like yeah like you need a ruler to measure what the role playing is and basically what most of this most of the research that I was seeing well all of the research it was like either it was Dungeons and Dragons and anything that was Dungeons and Dragons or later was a role playing game or it was proto role playing and um this was a problem that the linguists ran into linguists used to you know it was like either it's a language or it's a proto language but they didn't actually have a definition for what a proto language is so it's like oh so you're just going to throw out this term and people are just going to assume in their own head what that is but nobody knows what that is um so what i did was i sort of went in and i said okay if we see any kind of role playing we're going to call it a role playing game and then we're going to come up with at least some broad terms for what kind of role playing game it is. And so, you know, initially where you're seeing it, I mean, it comes down from the Kriegspiel games, the Prussian games, and, um, but there's a bottleneck. I mean, it's sort of, uh, I, I, I apply a lot of ideas that have to do with, with, uh, anthropology and, 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 uh, in terms of like, there's a bottleneck, a genetic bottleneck in the design, in the creation of role playing games, because, the guys in the Twin Cities never saw Kriegspiel. They only had one book. And so the guy they were looking at was Totten, Charles Adiel Lewis Totten, who was this American who, 
who designed this game that was used as a uh, um, it was a training game for military officers between the Civil War and whatever came after. I mean, we had this miraculous time where we weren't at war with anybody. It was like, we're just not going to conquer anybody. Well, that's weird. But we need an army, so we need to train our officers. And most of the officers are really old because they fought in the Civil War. We got to do something. Um, so Totten created this game. And what he was doing was there was sort of, there were several schools of thought about how to run a war game. And so there's even like ideas about a game should be deterministic. So it's more like chess in that, you know, if my heavy, heavy cavalry attacks your light infantry, these are the losses you're going to take always, right? Um, and, uh, and my troops just do what I tell them to do because that's the way we run this game. And then there was another school of thought that was the free creature spiel. Um, they call it free Kriegspiel. I don't know if they call it that back then. I haven't been able to find it. I think it was just Kriegspiel at that point. Yeah, I think there's a lot of terminology that's yeah. been added since. Anyway, so so you have this stage of the war game with role playing in it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and so that's important to know. And it's important to, to be able to say, okay, this is a kind of war game or role playing game. Um, the next stage would be, what did I do? They were, they were doing that, um, probably the domain game idea, um, empire games, um, which are the games where everybody is the leader of a country. Like, and, and, and you also have to pay attention to the scale. So in a war game, everybody's playing like a, a, you know, a colonel or a general or something in an army and they're moving the troops around. Um, you go to the domain games and you, you go up a notch and now you're the kings or the kings of, you know, the, the kings, the foreign policy advisors or whatever. And you're playing the, a game where you're dealing with economics and you're dealing with some really grand strategic scale stuff of like, we're moving an army over here, but we're not dealing with the little fiddly details of the army's fighting. Um, and so there's that stage. Um, there's a stage in wargaming where they go really small. Um, that would be like corns. Um, and that's still like a, 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 a role-played war game. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's kind of one of the things within the research that I thought was really flawed was people got obsessed with the, the scale issue and they were like, well, corns is a man-to-man -man game. So it's a role-playing, it's already a role-playing game. It's like, yeah, but they're not, what they're doing in a game is not actually the same kind of role-playing. Um, they haven't really broken any boundaries as far as it being more than just moving pieces on a board and pretending to be your guys. And um, one of the things I noticed when I read Corns is that the, the people who played it after they bought it like to play in groups. And so they would have a couple people on a side and play a game. And um, if you read the game, it does not say that. It literally, it's pretty heavily implied that you have a player A versus a player B and a referee. Mm -hmm. um and that's the other thing i mean i'm it's like such a broad subject you know of what is this referees seem to be a key element within uh all of this you cannot do a role-playing game without a referee so you'll see the referee in all of these role-playing games um and so then it was wesley who really broke through and created a different kind of role-playing game and um he created a game where you were a an individual and you had objectives and 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 you would talk to other individuals because it wasn't a war game 
you would talk to people and um, you could interact with them and negotiate with them. And, you know, you had, you, you were trying to find out and find out information. You were trying to get objects. Maybe you were trying to do somebody in, but the focus wasn't shooting people. And that's pretty miraculous. Um, and so, and, and in the case of his game, if you look at it, you can look at it in terms of like a movie or a, or a play structure. And so it's a very character based, it's, it's each character interacting with each character. The referee is there to adjudicate. The referee establishes the setting, establishes everything. Players come in, they play. The referee adjudicates what's going on. But for the most part, the referee is very hands off. And it's just the players interacting for hours on end. Um, exchanging things and, and whatever being, you know, whatever you do as your character. Um, <clears throat> so that was kind of, a, that's a miraculous point in time when Wesley creates that. Um, and then you've got another stage where you have, uh, uh, would be Dwayne Jenkins is the first one who, he takes the Wesley format and Wesley set all of his games, or he set his original game in the time of Napoleon in, in an imaginary Prussian town called Brownstein and um, so and then he did some others and Dave Arneson also became a referee because Wesley wanted to play his own game it's like everybody was having a blast he's like I want to play my game too <laughs> so Dave Arneson stepped in and became a Brownstein referee and he mostly ran uh, like Banania games I think which was a fictitious South American country that's right uh, like like all of these are sort of like you're you're in a place and there's like um political upheaval and so you're it's like which way is the country going to go you know yeah and um um and so yeah arneson was involved in that he ran a lot of those arneson also used those in his i mean within the context of the twin cities gamers they start with with war game rpg they go into sort of domain-based rpg where they're they're rulers of countries and um like Ross Maker describes them as having like campaign fever. They're addicted to the idea of the big campaign once they start doing that. And most of the time they fail for whatever reason, it's really hard to manage. And um, um, so Arneson started like the, one of his greatest campaigns, which is considered to be probably the largest Napoleonic campaign ever run by a referee with just an ungodly number of players in different cities. And he started it with a Brownstein game set in Paris at the beginning of the French Revolution. And this is where David McGarry plays uh, yeah. the princess or the queen. Uh, I forgot her name. I always forget her name, but um, the French queen, and which is hilarious. The, the, the Austrian queen, is it? And um, anyway, so, so they're doing that. And then at the same time as he's doing that, you know, they're doing the, the Brownstein games. Dwayne Jenkins creates a Brownstein, but instead of having it be just a single scenario, sort of like the RPG war game, he, he turns it into the campaign and he introduces the idea of the campaign and he does Brownstone, Texas, which is set in the Wild West, 1880s era Wild West. And they all have goofy names and it's really campy and goofy. Um, and they're, uh, I mean, even, and even there, like this sort of, there's, there's talk about like the lost Frenchman mine and mm -hmm. the, the lost, it is possible that the lost Frenchman mine would have been, would be considered maybe the first dungeon adventure, but it was happening in the wild west. They were exploring an old haunted mine in the wild west times. Um, 
so but we don't have any evidence of that it's just it's just hearsay between the players they're like oh yeah there was the lost frenchman mine um is it possible then, that uh that's going to be another uh Tonisborg where the documents are going to show up one day you know i really doubt it because i i think that a lot of jenkins stuff is just lost um um i don't know i got uh john peterson got me some some what he had about that that i used in the film which you know thanks john really appreciate that and um um, all we have is some fragments of referee notes from one of his games. Um, the other thing we have is a write-up that uh, Dave Arneson did about his character El El Pancho or El yeah El Pancho instead of Pancho or it's it's Pancho like belly you know yeah. and it's it was a or it was it El Pancho I forget but it's a par it's a parody about Pancho Villa yeah. but it's about the big fat guy you know and he plays the 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 uh, the uh, the big jolly uh punch revolutionary you know brigand you know yeah and um um and it's just a write-up where he they would do these play reports that was the other thing that's interesting is they do they would play a game and then they would do a play report and somebody would write up what had happened and they would analyze the game like you know what 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 happened that would that change the outcome of this historic battle the way we played it this time um and so we have those, we have a lot of play reports. Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, Dwayne was running that. I would think, I suspect maybe like as early as October of 1970, um, date chasing is kind of the big thing with the historians. And it's kind of like, you know, we just know what happened and nobody else was doing that. Um, and so that kind of, that, that creates, so you've got the, You've got the, the character-driven game by Wesley, and then you've got this sort of uh, campaign game by Dwayne Jenkins. They're being refereed the same way. So they're sort of very, they're very similar. And then Arneson starts doing these Blackmore games in the town of Blackmore. And it starts as sort of a medieval, um, a medieval Brownstein type game. He even calls it that, the medieval Brownstein. Um, and what happens though is that because of it's very, very strange i mean because of what he's trying to do and because he's trying to do something based on fantasy um he needs to kind of step in as a referee because there are too many unknown things that none of the players know that he needs to guide the players through um we think it's hard to date when the first dungeon adventure happened to um but we suspect it would be 19, maybe like 1971, like around Christmas of 1971 was when the first dungeon adventure happened. So about, where are we? I mean, maybe nine months. Well, we don't even know when it started. Like they, there's all this, I think that there's a lot of people, there are a lot of people running around claiming certitude based on what they see in documents. And it's like, and every time we find a new document, it's like, well, okay, that just blew everything away. Yeah. And the problem is, is that there aren't enough professional researchers that have the experience of having studied, I don't know, like early hominids or something <laughs> where it's like, they've only been around for 3 million years. Oh, wait, yeah. we found another bone and we just backdated it like 6 million years or whatever. You know, it's like, yeah. they, I mean, that's just the game, right? In real research. Um, um, and so, and that's, you know, there's, we're all amateurs. I'm not saying I'm any better. I'm an amateur researcher when it comes to games. I don't, can't get mm -hmm. like a ludology degree. I don't think maybe you can now, but 
I never could. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, Arneson invents the dungeon adventure, which is, that's the, that's the turning point in the whole thing. Um, and that's not to say that it's any better than um, what Wesley was doing or what, what Jenkins was doing. It's just that the focus, the purpose behind the game is different. And the experience the players have is really different. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, you know, that, that's that whole proto. That's where I get really like kind of pissed off about terms like proto RPG, because I think that Wesley's game is an RPG. It is just a different kind of RPG. Mm -hmm. um, so what Arneson creates, if you're using uh, the idea of story models, um, what he, he creates is the uh, um, adventure game, which is interesting because I came up with that idea to call it the adventure game. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's the name of Arneson's game company. He called his, his company Adventure Games. And then I was like, wow, he must have really understood what he was doing, yeah. you know, on a, on a higher level than most people were aware. Um, was and it so, uh, just from like taking a step back and I know your your history is you started in the early days of uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons yourself. And then I, yeah. I, think, I think you took a bit of a gap, but when you got back into it and then you started doing the research and the documentary, was it kind of like uh, awakening those early days for you as you were interviewing all these folks for the documentary as far as like what the magic was for a role-playing game for you? Well, I think what it woke up is that uh, role-playing games in their inception were difficult. Like like these, these little rules are very incomplete in a lot of ways, okay? And so you had to, either you, you had somebody show you, you'd have to be taught how to play and you'd have to see somebody playing and every group had its own style of play. So, um, I mean, it's well-documented that there are people who didn't even realize that it wasn't supposed to be played with miniatures, that they just played with miniatures and played it like a board game, like a game of dungeon board game or something like that. Um, and, um, and other people did other things. So there was a real culture of, of uh, kind of inventiveness, very, very creative, inventive sort of thing. And, um, and that doesn't exist today in a lot of ways. And so when I met the, uh, when Chris says that too, he's like, these are like the guys I hung out with, like, these are really smart guys, and they're like, really creative, and they don't need to buy, you know, they'll buy the three games they want. But they're going to be like, this one has a better movement system, this one has a better combat system, I like the way the maps are done for this one let's just mix them up and make our own game and add our own additional rules because we want, we can make a better game, you know? Um, and so that's, those are the kind of guys they are. I mean, and they're incredibly, I mean, they're creative and, and they do a lot of different things that aren't just gaming, but they bring to game, you know, it kind of mm -hmm. helps bring more to the gaming. Um, so that was the main thing was hanging out with them was just like, Oh, these are my people. I'm going to hang out with these guys, you know? <laughs> um and once we got to be friends with them i mean we're buddies with them it sucks that we're not in the twin cities or i'd just be gaming with them like they would be my game group um, yeah. and you know and that's the other thing is like i think the rpg crowd uh there's a lot of excitement when you first get into rpgs and you're very focused on that um and for the twin cities gamers a lot of them are into other they're just like yeah we want to get together and play our our war games right because that's what we really like. And, and I'm sort of the same way. It's like, I'll play an RPG, but I like, there's a certain level of risk and, and stress involved in a, in a big war game that's a lot more like gambling. And I really like that feeling of just like, man, 
when you know I've got cavalry hidden in that forest and I'm just waiting for them to come up <laughs> that road you know but if I let them out too soon then they're going to get blasted right I've got to just yeah. time it perfectly and so um, a lot of nail biting in a war game you know and so yeah I don't know that's I mean that's just kind of what they're like you know mm -hmm. um, and they do you know they do the annual uh, Blackmoor games um, um, yeah I don't know I don't know what else to say about that but really it was Arneson who created this other format that's what I wanted to go back to which I call the adventure game and so that is what role-playing is it's, it's very much based on like if you think of action movies like even uh Raiders of the Lost Ark would be a great example because it has a little dungeon in the beginning of it right um you have a character they're going through you know there are they have agency to move through the story through this the physical space and um and as they do so a, a narrative is being developed and and so you're getting a narrative out of that which is another thing that you know like narrative is inherent to the adventure game and so you are creating narratives you know you, everything is a, is is a narrative in the game and and i think that there's a lot of a lot of people are like well in the old days they just you know all they did was kill monsters and it was like not really because the reason you went to the dungeon was you heard that there were like you know these orcs were coming out of this place you know hole in the ground they were like attacking the villagers and the villagers need help so you got to go figure out what's going on and then you go there and you find out like well the orcs that are coming out of the hole in the ground actually work for this wizard and he lives way down in the dungeon and is surrounded by all of his super powerful minions and so you know it just it starts mm -hmm. to evolve a story and you and then you encounter good people and bad people in a dungeon or in the wilderness and uh and those create other narratives they're all like mini narratives yeah. like the the, the emergent narrative is uh what happens as you play the yeah. game the interaction between the world and the players and the referee yeah yeah um the, it's, i mean it's i wouldn't even say it's an emergent narrative i think it's just a you're in a narrative state when you play these games and like like just different narratives you're going to get narrative the whole thing is narrative don't yeah. even you know don't lie to yourself you're in a narrative state um so let's... so arneson oh i just wanted to add one thing like i mean it's kind of fascinating because there's a lot of there was a lot of conjecture that arneson's first dungeon game wasn't even a true role-playing game it's not like dungeons and dragons um uh it's a proto rpg and it's like no it was a, it was what it was was he had two groups and he was running the bad guys against the good guys so i think it was kurt cry and and sukup that were the the balrog and the wizard that were down in the dungeon that had stolen something from the baron and the players were going down and so it was like he was running a split party in a DD game where each party is taking turns with him and playing and i i imagine that sukup and the, and the uh the balrog and the wizard were down there and they were just getting reports of like oh somebody's attacked a group of orcs over here you know in the dungeon what do you want to do it's like mm -hmm. they're like okay let's we should send some you know 10 more orcs to that area or whatever and so the whole for them their experience was a very fog of war thing and i'm sure arneson was creating fake attacks like maybe it was just a monster that you know a spider or something that attacked their yeah. men or orcs or whatever but he was creating this thing where they're trying to be commanders in a in a in a like a double blind game um but then for the adventures at the same time since they're moving and they're the they're the raiders um 
he was creating a true RPG type adventure game experience of the of the you know the the the, the reality of the RP the fantasy RPG. But he was, you know, it's the first time that anybody's ever done a dungeon game and he's running essentially a split party simultaneously. Absolutely crazy. Like the guy was just, you know, it, that's, that's, to me, that's just amazing. Yeah. You know? um, and, and later on, he was known, like if you talk to Jeff Barry, Jeff Barry describes Dave Arneson as the, as the Lord of Chaos. And he's like, if you got eight people in the party, he's going to have a different story for every character. And you, and he's like he he's been doing it so long, you know. He invented it. Uh, he's totally at home. He, like you can go off anywhere you want. He'll run a split party with eight characters and be totally on top of it, you know. Yeah. Um, which is something that most dungeon masters would. I mean, just it's terrifying. You know? Yeah. Even splitting it in half is terrifying. Yeah, anyway, the old adage of never splitting a party, right? Um, yeah. Which, yeah. Which I mean the the payout or the payoff at the end when you can make it work is amazing if you can yeah, make yeah. it work right uh so let's try to connect the dots here so you've done the documentary you've interviewed all these amazing foundational people to role playing games they've mentioned a, a Tonus Borg um dungeon mm -hmm. so how does that play into the new um book uh, the lost dungeons of Tonusburg that you have put out and how did you pull it all together what was the formation of that idea you know, it took about two and a half years to write the book. Um, it's it's sort of just evolved. Well, just tell us um, how you how did how did the Tonusborg get discovered? Because that's kind of uh, a piece we haven't talked about yet. Is like people yeah, mentioned it yeah. in the documentary, and then then what? Right. Well, actually, they didn't mention they mentioned it in one interview. And um, what we would do is we would do these ca casual interviews at David McGarry's house. We would have dinner or we'd order in food or something. And um, I was always trying to get Rose to come in and she wouldn't come in and do the interviews. She'd be hiding in the kitchen. She didn't want to be on camera. But Rose, I got to get you in for an interview. But anyway, um, um, so it would be like me and and Ross and, uh, well, it'd be our crew. So we had Ryan, our, our, our assistant, who would often run camera during those. Uh, and Chris, camera and cinematographer guy, um, and then me interviewing, and then Ross and Wesley and McGarry together. And um, so, and we did that with a lot of the interviews. We, I try to get people in pairs because sometimes they they like jog jostle yeah. each other's memory, you know. Um, and so we would just do these really casual interviews where I would let about half of it just be a meandering discussion about whatever. I'd guide him a little bit into the past because I was I want to know about them and who they are. But I also just want to know, I mean, there's there is a magical thing to see these people who have known each other since they were some of them since they were about 16 years old or younger. Uh, um, just just watch them interact. Um, like for instance, when Bill Hoyt is with uh, Dwayne Jenkins. Um, I mean, that's just a funny scene to me because those guys have known each other since grade school and they're like, oh, you know, 70 years old or something. So you're, you're looking at these two, like, he's like, 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 uh, Bill refers to Jenkins as Jenks. Ah, Jenks, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, you see, you see the, this feeling of love toward friends, you know, this, this, uh, yeah, it's just beautiful. You see that you, you can't say that you just watch it and you're like, oh, wow, these guys these guys are tight, you know, they know each other, they've been through all the BS and they're just like having a good time still, you know. 
And so we do that with all the groups, but with the, um, I'm going around, I know we deviate all over the place, but um, with the Wesley Maker, McGarry interviews, they would talk about all kinds of things. Like I really, I, the one person, we started the movie about a year before Dan, or after Dan Nicholson passed away. And Dan Nicholson is an incredibly significant person in the group, as far as I'm concerned. And um, he's not, you know, he's an unsung hero. It's sort of like, uh, what is it, Don Kay in, the, in, in Lake Geneva. Okay, that's Dave, uh, Gary Gygax's best friend. We know almost nothing about him. We have almost no photographs. I mean, we, like as a collective uh, historical community, we only know, I only know of like maybe three or four photographs of Don Kay right but 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 he is part of the gnk enterprises that launched dungeons and dragons and he was the one who put them like he was the one that laid it on the line and said this is worth doing i'm gonna take out you know a couple thousand dollars or whatever it was so that we can launch this game and make it happen and um um yeah and he's unknown and dan nicholson is kind of the same sort of person it's like yeah he wasn't maybe the biggest driving force but he was there the whole time um and uh so yeah so i just let him go off on these things sorry i go on tangents and okay. and mcgarry would always do these things like he'd be like oh well in this night i mean it's like oh i have this old dungeon I'm like you do I'm like yeah let me go get it you know so he's just kind of like leaves the table and we're like oh okay we'll just keep talking about whatever we're talking about and he shows up and he's like here i think this dungeon and um um so we looked at it we didn't look at it for very long you know i, I wanted to look at it longer but it's like we're doing an interview we can't just have cameras rolling and just be looking at maps together right but um everybody looked at it my prognosis was that it was a dave arneson dungeon because it looks exactly like a blackmore dungeon um people don't i mean there are like all these little significant things that the research people are aware of and they'll look at something and be able to like how the dungeon is drawn is a huge indicator of who made it it's like handwriting um, like you can tell uh, yeah how somebody designs a dungeon just based upon their personality almost well, like I wrote an article for a, uh, uh, there's a, a, a journal of mazes and catacombs or something like that, Caradroya. And I wrote an article for them. I mean, it's like kind of a scientific journal about mazes and I forgot what the rest of the, the, rest of the title was. But um, um, I wrote an article for them just about dungeon map symbolism for doors. And so that was one of the key things that I saw in that map was that um, I refer to the Dave Arneson door, door drawing style as the ping pong paddle, because it, instead of, uh, if you look at, well, there are like so many different door drawings, the way people draw maps. There's the original one in, I believe it's the, uh, maybe Monster or Wilderness, Underworld and Wilderness, this one, yeah. This one has um, just little parallel lines. I mean, you can't see that because it's so tiny, but this one has, Basically, you have a line and you have two parallel lines mm -hmm. drawn across it. Yeah. And so that represents the doorway gap, right, with a door in it. Um, later, they went to one which I have deduced probably is devised off of, like, this is where McGarry's Dungeon Game is such a huge influence on D&D &D and people don't even realize it because it doesn't look like a role-playing game. Nobody's looking at it to see where it's influencing D&D. &D. And again, it's like, oh, no. 
the, the door style that you see in most of the TSR modules, which is the, the, the thick lines with the little rectangle, yeah. right? Um, that is lifted right off of McGarry's prototype for dungeon board game, because that's the way he did them on dungeon board game. And so they started imitating. If they had, Gary Gygax had the prototype for a while. And so he was just imitating what he saw there. Um, and then Arneson did the thing where it was just a gap, but then he would have the ping pong paddle for the doorway. Yeah. So Arneson is interesting because he's the only one that shows you which way the door swings. Well, there's another kind of door, that door uh, diagram that's more like an architectural diagram type doorway. But um, Arneson's kind of the first one that shows you, okay, you come to the door and it opens inward or, mm -hmm. or outward. Um, so yeah, I saw those maps and that was kind of like a huge indicator, like, okay, this is an Arneson map, you know? Um, and then you look at the corridors and it's just, it's just this maze of diagonal corridors that players are going to get lost in and just die, you know? Um, and that's what happened with a lot of characters. They would go down into, into Tonisborg. It doesn't look that big, but once you're down on the eighth level and you got to figure your way out of there, it's a mess, you know? It and the one thing that jumped out at me was, as you mentioned, the diagonal design of it. And for me, like, I mean, you grow up and you get the hex paper or not the hex paper, the grid paper, and you're drawing mm -hmm. your dungeon and you just go on the lines, but they never did, or at least these, for the most part, some mm -hmm. of the uh, diagonals and I creatively, they look awesome. I, I like the, the, the yeah, I mean, I, you know, actually, you know, we just, we get complaints. People are saying the book's too expensive. So we're looking at maybe doing an even cheaper version that's just on like really crappy print on demand paper. That's like, if you, I mean, it's like, it's not like we don't want people to have the dungeon, right? Yeah. We don't want people to have the book. So we're going even cheaper. But um, I mean, here's a, a double spread of, of maps. I don't know if it's very in focus. Yeah. Everything is out yeah. of focus because my glasses aren't. No, that's, that's all viewable. Yeah. And I can, yeah, I guess it would be this way, maybe. And I it? can, I can insert the PDF, I think, uh, of the map okay. on there too. So, um, anyway, yeah, you see how diagonal all of that is. Um, it's that's another significant thing that we've gotten from Tonisborg is that, um, because or the other when we were talking about it, the other thing the guys noticed is there's one room on the dungeon keys. I don't remember what level it would be, like maybe three or four. Um, where there are gnolls, here's level six. I mean, all the monsters are very much uh, OD and D type monsters um, because it was a draft of Dungeons and Dragons. So the monsters are all there. Even the black puddings are in there, which is Dave Arneson's first, like it's the first like not fictional or not uh, fantasy monster. It's a science mm -hmm. fiction monster being imported into, into a fantasy game. Um, Anyway, there's like a lot of uh, there's there's you'll see the similarity if you if you know original Dungeons and Dragons and you see these maps, you'll be like, oh, this is just straight up OD and D. Oh yeah, room number ten on the fourth level has gnolls in it, and that's and there are were rats there too. So um, those are very much very unique to D and D. I mean, the black pudding too. You know, the black pudding yeah. is 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 the most dnd ish thing in there i'm trying to think or no it's even level two there are gnolls in one room the treasure map room yeah um anyway um so when the guys saw that i think it was ross and and uh wesley that were like well there are gnolls in here so this has to this cannot predate the publication of dnd um 
we were just busy, but McGarry mentioned that it was probably uh, like in, in further conversations, he was like, I think what it is is a, is a set of maps from Thomas Borg. And so, I mean, this is where we come full circle. I'm, I'm talking circles. The research community was aware of Thomas Borg because it's mentioned in a couple places, I think. Um, most significantly, the most significant mention is that I believe Arneson says that the first person that was a dungeon master for him so that he could play was Greg Svensson running Thomas Borg Dungeon. Um, so that makes, and that's another thing is like Greg Svensson probably was the second dungeon master ever, like an RPG referee for fantasy game before that, because he talks about some things he did because Arneson was tired that day. So Arneson just handed him some notes and said, go run these guys doing this thing. Um, so Greg is like a really significant person in the history of the game because he's probably the second person to ever referee a, a fantasy game like this. And he makes what is probably maybe the, it's the second mega dungeon out of the Twin Cities. Um, Arneson had the Blackmore dungeon, which originally was only six levels and then it gets bigger. And then he also did a little one at the, I think the Temple of the Id, or I think it's called which is a little bit outside of Blackmore Town. And then he did other ones, but um, um, later. Um, but it's also significant because uh, the way that it was designed, unfortunately, Greg doesn't have the, the notes from when he made it, but Arneson had a system for creating dungeons randomly. And uh, um, so he gave Greg, kind of gave him, you know, this is how you do it. I mean, it was it was probably a very simple system. You just a stairway down to start it, and then you go. Um, and, I, and I think I read in the notes it was all dice. like rolling like d sixes, and there's a mechanism involved uh, with yeah uh, with auto creation of the dungeon. But the mechanism itself almost implied the design, so it yeah. wasn't completely yeah. random. There was like some thought behind what the mechanism was meant to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's sort of a yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I um, uh, there's been a lot of talk about that aspect of it is that it's not fully randomized, but it is sort of randomized. Um, I've been looking at it and I, I mean, I can, I can deduce that from looking, I've been looking at the maps for, you know, I've probably looked at it more than anybody on the planet at this point, because I've been running the dungeon for years now, since we found it, which might've been four years ago. I don't know. You can figure McGarry and McGarry and, uh, uh greg ran it but i don't even know if they spent that much time really you know it was just a thing they were doing so they didn't spend as much time analyzing it and looking for for prop the properties within it um whereas i've been just looking at it for years and sort of thinking about what am i seeing what am i seeing here you know and um so yeah that's kind of the interesting thing like um what level did we give out as a sample was it level three? I can't uh, can't recall. I don't have. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't have it handy. But uh, okay, I know. I just wondered if you had it handy. And, and you I guess it. for you viewers, it. Uh, maybe I'll just insert at this point. We can continue on, but I'll insert at this point. So you are doing a Kickstarter for the Tonus Borg book, which yes. includes this dungeon, and there's a free, I think, eleven page PDF that mm -hmm. people can go check it out. The Kickstarter will be in the description, the links, and everything like that. And people can go check it out and just get a sense of a little bit about the dungeon, uh, Tonus Borg. And, yeah. and the other thing I want to talk about, we don't have to get there yet, is like your your piece of it as far as the, okay. the, the DM advice 
so we've we've so we've got the dungeon that you discovered, and then how does that translate into envisioning the product, which also includes a lot of mm-hmm. really good DM advice and kind of theory on how to play ODE. Yeah. Um, yeah, that this would be good to insert earlier on, please. Um, and then I can do the description of what it is. <laughs> well, um, well, we're gonna run yeah. it right through, so we're gonna no no editing. I don't like to edit. We'll just. Uh, oh, okay. Um, well, I mean. It, those we, we just hit on a lot of things and i yeah. lost where i was um but well, uh well let me just talk about the maps i mean i yeah. think the maps are so i've been i'm kind of slow because it's earlier in the day that's why i was like <laughs> when you said we're gonna do this show at 9 a.m i'm like i am in the first year at that point and i'm not gonna be very cohesive um but the insignificant thing is is that dave arneson gave greg a system for doing a random dungeon or a semi-random dungeon and it looks exactly like um, Blackmore Dungeon, you know, not exactly like it, but stylistically, it's very similar. So that's like, okay, so is Blackmore Dungeon sort of procedurally created through die rolls, um, or at least parts of it? And 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 so that's that's significant because, you know, these all these things kind of it. Right when D and D is being created is right when computers are starting to really get to be something, um, and so the idea of procedural things in games is interesting because they're doing when they're when they're creating their games what they're doing is they're sort of writing pseudocode like program pseudocode on paper so they can control games and that's what their rules are is it's sort of weird pseudocode and. Um, and so there are dungeon games that appear within a year of D&D being published. Dungeon games appear on computers. I was there in the place where that happened, actually, as a kid in 75 um, and played the original dungeons. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of interesting that they're doing that because they're sort of doing, you, you see that now with games where they'll have like sort of a recursive element within the game where it can just create an endless world for you and you don't know that it's mm-hmm. an endless space it, it just generates interest for you and you go on forever right yeah um, um and so they were doing this on paper arneson was doing this on paper in in you know as early as 71 you know that's 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 pretty phenomenal really um but you were asking about other things like how the I mean, the dungeon, we, you know, we found the dungeon from the McGarry meeting. It was Dan Boggs who, who reached out to Greg and said, you know, here's some scans of this thing we found. And um, finally, and just showed them to him. And I don't know why I hadn't done that. Because I, when I interviewed Greg, I was like, I even told Greg, I was like, I think we found your dungeon. He was like, oh, cool. You know, yeah. but um, um, so Dan was, Dan gets credit for like making, you know, verifying it. I mean, I'm not trying to undermine that, but. Uh, I'm mostly giving myself credit for being a moron, um, <laughs> which is, I mean, that's kind of my attitude with like Chris and I joke about the fact that we completed our movie out of like four film companies that created that we're going to do D&D movies. We were the only ones that could do it and complete it. And it's because we're just too stupid to know any better is what we always tell people. But um, on to the Tonis Borg book. Uh, it's interesting because there was, there's a different culture in gaming, and 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 this started even as early as uh, the the late '70s in D and D. People started getting really obsessed with modules and seeing and running prefabricated things. 
Um, they were a lot less turnkey back then. So you would get a lot of like, even Judges Guild would publish dungeons and they looked like the Taunus Board keys. It would literally be a map, a bunch of numbers. And by each number, it'd be like eight orcs and 300 gold pieces. And so as a DM, if you got that dungeon and you were going to run it, you had to go like, okay, what are these orcs doing? Why are they there? You know, and kind of give, yeah. you'd have to create a narrative to understand their motives for what they were doing, you know. Maybe these orcs are just going to run away if they feel over, you know, overrun by a big party of 10 players or whatever. Um, and so, uh, but it was very much like that. And so now, of course, uh, the dungeons are very much uh, very turnkey, like even down to like what people say, like the dungeon masters are reading yeah. like scripts, you know, and, and uh, that's just absurd to me because I think that the nature of the game is that it is a constantly evolving it is a new thing um and that's kind of like the old you know that's i mean i'm kind of meandering it, it all ties in together with the idea of like what the osr is and and uh i don't i don't like the idea of the osr i mean i like the idea of playing in the old way right but then to say that we're playing in the old way kind of just makes it seem like it's this really fixed it's very concretized and you can't do anything else and so Really, the old way was a, it's more about methods rather than fixed rules. And so when Dan and I wanted to write the book, originally I wanted to do a book, I, was, I suggested that we call it A Thousand and One Passages and um, do a parody, not a parody, but sort of parallel to the chess books by, uh, what, the, what is the guy's name? Something like Reinfeld or something. He did these chess problem books. It was like A Thousand and One, um, you know, traps and mm -hmm. And another one was like a thousand and one checkmates. And they were the books that chess players would just pour over to practice, just like basic tactics. And um, and um, and just sort of ways to visual, you know, learning to visualize really inside like convoluted patterns. So I thought it'd be fun to do like a a, a book about playing RPGs that's you know, just gives you like all these examples of how to handle different situations. And it wasn't necessarily like uh uh it's not a a rule it's not a guide it's not fixed like these these really turnkey things it was more like here are some ideas and just read these ideas and maybe you can springboard off those and create your own ideas so it was more like a, a yeah a thousand and one passages so it'd just be a room description or a hallway description just a million different encounter ideas of what what you can do and dan was just said like let's just do tonis board I was like, okay, excellent. We're going to do Taunus Park. And um, so, so we ported that idea, that was the idea of teaching people methods for playing in the old way. But there, there are new ideas in the, in the whole section. It's not, it's not about being bound by any sort of specific set of rules of, that you have to follow. Um, it's more about understanding that there is a method and sort of a mindset that you can get into and when you're playing in that way you're playing uh you're just it's a different style than what you see in newer games and i hate you know if you're playing 5e and you love 5e play your 5e i don't care okay um the difference would be like in the for example somebody on the internet just we were joking and and he said yeah i had a young player run into a, a, a problem there was a situation and in order to get further with whatever the thing was you had to solve a puzzle. And so the character was like, you know, like, like, what do I need to roll to, 
to know how to solve the puzzle. And the dungeon master was like, keep rolling those dice and I'm going to get a drink. And then when I get back, <laughs> nothing will have changed because you don't get to roll dice to solve this problem. You have to figure it out on your own, you know? And, and, uh, and so that's the difference is like all these lore roles and, you know, roles to know what you don't know. And that, that is just like video game on paper. And that's, that's part of the problem is that designers, a lot of the designers that are designing RPGs now for the big companies are coming out of the video game industry. So they're gamifying everything like a computer program. And um, that is not what was intended in the role-playing game at all. Um, I actually, if you go to the Kickstarter, I just did a whole, I just got a hair up my ass to talk about, I had this idea. And so I did this whole write-up about the idea of formal and informal game structure mm -hmm. and how really uh, unique the role-playing game that Arneson created is because it has, it combines formal and informal in one game, but the, the informal part, which is the make-believe part, is the skeleton upon which all the rules hang, right? And so it's, it's really weird because it's just an amorphous thing. And so when you need a rule, it, I mean, it's very much like a precursor to, I always say this, it's like a precursor to object-oriented programming. You don't, you know, you're going along and you're doing whatever you're doing in the dungeon. And it's like, well, you know, as you walk over this one part of the passage, I need everybody to roll me a die and everybody rolls a die. And it's like, okay, so-and-so gets a poison dart in their leg because it comes out of this little hole in the hallway. And, you know, uh, and, and uh, um, what was I going to say about that? But the rule that rule that rule only happens it's 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 only going to happen when you need to resolve this particular situation or you go to another place and you go and you find a door i want to open the door i want to listen to the door this is this now requires a rule a judgment call but instead of having the ref these are situations where if the referee would say like oh you don't hear anything you know and then you open the door and it's like there's a dragon there right the players are going to be like okay you're a jerk and i don't want to play with you but if you take a die roll and you and you just treat it as a die roll, now the referee is sort of out of the loop, you know, mm -hmm. as far as he doesn't get any blame, he, she. Um, um, and so, so you have this system where you're using this make-believe mechanism to control everything, and and you're and then you're applying rules. And um, and that's what I call, I mean, in a book we call it traditional role playing. I don't know. I mean, it's trying to find like traditional sounds kind of stuffy too. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, but it's it a, comes with connotations of like you know we don't want to change type of, of element to it. But the traditional style and one of the things about your update that I liked, and I think it was in your update. Maybe I read it somewhere else that you talked about there. Over time, people have always tried to kind of reinvent what make improve upon the original concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that one. Yeah. So maybe maybe uh, this would be a good opportunity for you to talk about that specific instance of people come in and they go, well, I don't like this. I'm going to fix it. And they add more rules in order to yeah. fix it. But well, you know, that's the thing is like, I mean, that's that's what I was trying to. I, I think that there's everybody has a personal what I call like the, the personal sweet spot on what the balance is between the informal, which is all the make believe and and the the interchange between the DM and the players that that creates the experience and the immersion and the, and the formal, which is the rules. And people have 
desires for different degrees of that because they want to have uh, more control or less control or I don't know. It depends on what your what your goal is. And um, but I do think that ever since D and D was created, there was this sort of like, oh, that's not realistic. We need to do this right. And so I was on the internet. Um, I think it was RPG Pub. I, was, I I went there to advertise Thomas Borg, and there was a discussion about realism in combat and. And that's the classic one where it's like, no, you do not, if you really want to play the game properly, you do not want realism in combat. You want abstraction in combat. And you're not aiming to simulate what happens during a combat. You're aiming to, you're only aiming for results of what happens from a combat. That's a very different, different thing. And, um, and recently I read, I mean, it's so frustrating because people will post things they find and, and a lot of Gary Gygax quotes and I love a lot of the stuff that he says about the RPG. And there was one, and they posted this page from something and he was talking about something else. But right below it, he starts talking about combat and, 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 the, and the fact that combat is intended as an abstraction that your hit points are not real damage points. They're a wearing down. And that we don't want to get, like, we don't want to get so granular that like when your parent, when you're fighting, you know, your, your foot gets cut off or something in a battle. It's like, we still want to stay within sort of that silly realm of like maybe an Errol Flynn movie where you just, you know, and you, you know, like you get a slash, but you know, you fight on and, and, and you don't think too much about what you're doing to bad guys with your sword. You're not thinking about like hacking off limbs and heads and ears and stuff. Cause that's kind of gross. You're just, you're vanquishing your foes. Right. Um, but uh from a mechanical standpoint like like gygax was just i was just like astounded i was like oh this is where i am with it you know like, like i think this is important he just he just reiterated everything i was thinking i was like okay well that's great because i mean i thought i was being a genius because i had come up on this idea of thinking in terms of abstractions like oh no gary had you know both gary and dave both were, were thinking that way yeah. and um um so yeah i mean there's just this obsession with wanting to put on detail the thing is, is that these games come out of war games. And so uh, what you're seeing is the removal of that. I mean, it's it's even within the the, the, the Blackmore bunch, okay? They're, they're taking a strict war game. They were playing a, a, a very strict traditional miniatures war game. They find Tonis, they find not Tonis Borg, they find um, Totten, all these Totten Borg. Totten, Totten, and they realize they find a couple passages in there that suggest this idea of, of how to simulate the fog of war. Um, most significant being Totten's statement that, that Wesley uh, paraphrases, and Arneson also paraphrases in one of his books, um, the idea that a player should be allowed to do anything they want, although not always successfully. But you're allowed to try to do the thing. Um, and so, they're, they move toward this, they have this trajectory where they're going further and further away from an actual board game to the point where, where Arneson just removes the board game. When you're in a dungeon, you have a map, but you don't have a board game. You're not moving pieces on a board. Um, and then McGarry sees Arneson's game and he's like, you know, that would make a great board game. <laughs> and so he takes this whole like 10 year trajectory and turns it around and turns it into a board game, right? And so they already did that within their group. And so when you, when I see there, it's just, you know, every time I see somebody trying to do the realism thing, it's like, well, we need a map, we need miniatures, we need this, we need that. Um, we need, we need more complexity. 
and and actually the more complexity you add to the game the less the less the realistic the experience is what the goal of the game is is to experience this this whatever you're doing in whatever setting or whatever um it's not to simulate the thing um in sort of a i don't know just in any really detailed way like a game of Panzer blitz or something um how much, so, how much how much do you think of that is because of the money making like when you think about even modules or like okay now we got to sell miniatures and now we want to all those things over the years yeah. like how much of it is driven by just pure economic like we made a game but once they buy it they don't need us anymore so let's make other products to fit right a lot of it is economic like that i mean that's the thing with like even the tonic sport book we were just like we're just going to put everything in there um see that's another bit i didn't put it in the movie i was saving it for a follow-up movie then we went broke so we made a movie but then we don't have any money to make another movie yet um <laughs> But we have like tons of footage and we want to shoot more footage. But um, she was holding these up and in her interview, and she would always be best when, when she thought we'd turned off the camera, when she thought we were done. And she just started just to kind of ruminate. She was like, yeah, it was so, you know, so simple back in the day. You just had these little books. And she held up, she had an original brown box set. I'm like, oh yeah, you're holding about $10,000 worth of game in your hands. <laughs> but she was just like it's just so simple you know and she was talking about i think her son brian like when brian goes to game he's got so many books that he's got to carry with them you know and i think her son was playing maybe you know whatever edition of dnd was out then but she was like yeah back then it was just you know your imagination you just had these little books and it was so much fun um and i mean it's just like gail is kind of like the the i want to listen before i start the follow-up film whenever we get to that I just want to go through her interviews and be like, okay, Gail is going to open the movie and she's going to close the movie. She's the only one who understands what's going on here. <laughs> you know? And um, because she's not looking at it from this sort of dorky wargamer perspective, she's just like, like, how do we enjoy ourselves playing this game? You know, like we don't need a lot of this, you know? And, uh, and she's got like an eighth level cleric character yeah. that she, that in black, to get to eighth level in Blackmore is just amazing, you know, like, because yeah. Arneson is known for being just, like, like he is the killer DM. You know? <laughs> he would just wade through parties and destroy them yeah. ruthlessly. Um, but yeah, back to the, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so, you know, there's the economic forces that are at play. And then uh, I think some of the frustration and why there's like such discourse often between like, say, OSR, and I know we don't want to call it OSR, but the old way of playing versus some of the newer, like re uh, realistic kind of mechanics that yeah. take away from the immersion. But the frustration is like the older players go, this is what you're missing out on to the newer players that might not have uh, discovered it because they're so entrenched in 5e or whatever. I don't want to throw 5e under the bus, but you know, like that, that yeah. we, we say to them like, hey, this is a huge opportunity for immersion. You should try it. But then they don't because. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that, well, I mean, it's designed for addiction. The game is designed for addiction. It's it's as you know as much designed for addiction as the social media platforms are. You know, they're not doing you a favor. You, you think, oh, I get these, I get to talk to my friends. Like, no, I, you get a lot of other crap in there too. Yeah. And um, so the algorithms that are built into social media, which would be computer algorithms, those algorithms are built into the paper code of the RPG that make it addictive. 
So the, the, the one thing they wanted to do that we didn't have in the past was to allow players to play solo. And when they, and what I mean by this is that they, they made character creation become a really important part of the game. So everybody goes home and they work on their character and they're all sort of competing to make the cool character, right? And so they spend hours on that and you need to get all the books to get all the classes and all the stuff, right? But, but the main thing is just this addiction mechanism because you're getting like, you know, your little brain drugs are flying in there. Um, actually, I wrote that on my blog. I talked about how like, <laughs> like toxic RPGs are and, and not in, you know, and it's like, I say that, but what I mean is like, you have to be aware of what this is doing to you and that, that there are like, like impulse control is, is just a level of maturity that you have to evolve. Like women, women tend to have a stronger sense of impulse control than men or, you know, boys and girls, not, not saying everybody, they're going to be outliers, but as a generality, um, there's that within gender, you know, oh, I'm going to get into trouble. Let's not talk about gender. People, <laughs> people have issues. Um, anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's everywhere in these games, you know, it's this, this, there is this addictive trait to it. I mean, even chess, I know chess players, I was, I was a pretty hardcore chess addict and, chess is like incredibly addictive and i had to, i just had to quit cold turkey because i was like i am not doing anything in my life like i get on the bus to go to work and i'm looking at a chess book and i'm visualizing the board and i'm turning it in my head and moving pieces and rotating it and moving a piece and you know and and um and so i do that on the bus i get to work because i have a job where i don't have to be i'm, I'm a control room operator i'm sort of screwing off because I'm looking at my chess book the whole night you know I was doing so it was like I my waking hours are full of chess I look at my daughter and I just see this like you know if she says dad I'm hungry I'm like thinking of it as this weird abstract chess thing yeah. you know um yeah I just had to give it up you know so but they yeah you can build that into that sort of addiction into anything nobody seems to be talking about it very much um but so I do find it interesting that you brought it up because I don't, I don't think anybody else has asked me about that before the addiction factor, but now let's get the, the young players. I think that there's a, a the level of consumerism is different. Um, I mean, consumerism has always been there. Um, we were buying consumer goods when we were kids. Uh, um, the thing is, is that the market was, wasn't as heavily dominated by TSR as, as it is now by Wizards of the Coast. Um, you could have these little startup companies, you know, like, like, um, flying or not flying Buffalo, but Steve Jackson or not Steve Jackson, metagaming, metagaming. I don't know what their first thing was. I think maybe they were doing online computer games. Um, but their first micro game was ogre. Yeah. Um, and those showed up in the game shop along with all the other, uh, along with D and all the and, the and the judges guild stuff yeah. and I the minute those a, showed up hmm. i just i just interviewed uh steve jackson uh i guess about a month ago and uh he talked about the metagaming and the transition of how like he came in afterwards with ogre and then uh eventually went on to like start his own gaming company yeah it's just kind of yeah. interesting to kind of see his evolution and how in parallel to a lot of these things that you're discussing as far as like the, the commerce side. Well, of like, 
Yeah, I was actually, I mean, you could, if you wanted to talk about the idea of like the, the sort of the really concretized game as opposed to the, or the really formalized game as opposed to the informal game, like Steve Jackson's Melee and Wizard are a good example of like taking the combat from a fantasy game and turning it into a war game again. Yeah. And, um, and um, I just, uh, yeah, we, we're, I mean, we're talking about so many big things that it's like getting there is a little bit hard. So maybe I should shut up about whatever I was talking about. <laughs> Um, oh, oh no, I, no but I, no what i was going to say was simply that in the old days people were into a lot of different kinds of games and it wasn't just like i am only a role player i, yeah. I am also a war gamer oh maybe we'll get the miniatures out and play a miniatures war game so within my group of gamers anyway um, i sort of abandoned a group of, of fanboy rpgers because they never wanted to do anything but play ad and d and i was like you know what i want to play other games i got i got a collection you know, thousands of dollars of games and half of them haven't even been opened and the counters punched out. And I sat that way for, you know, yeah. 40 years. But um, so that's, there's a big difference in the kind of gamers that we, my group and the people like me were, which is when you described earlier on, you know, what it, was it like meeting the Blackmore bunch? It was like, these are my kind of gamers because they'll play an RPG, but then they'll also be like, let's get out a thousand Napoleonic miniatures and put them on a giant table and play for eight hours over two days, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I'm kind um, of the same way where like, I, I just love just playing games in general and it's probably an unpopular opinion, but fantasy, like typical, like D and D fantasy, I kind of get tired of. And so I'm always looking for these like weird oddball games. And those are, even when I was younger, those are the things that always fueled me was like yeah, I yeah. found like new rule sets and like new like settings and that kind of stuff. I just found it fascinating. So for me, whenever I find out somebody only plays 5e, I go, whoa, you're just you're missing out on such a diverse see that's the world. thing. It's not like it's not like your game sucks. I mean the people do that, you know, like your game sucks because it's this and that and the other thing. And um and and the 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 suckage that I see is the stuff that when you were talking about addictive properties they've created this game that has certain addictive properties that appeal to a certain age group. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's there, but um, I was going to go on to something else and now I lost the thread. I usually keep, I usually keep a pen and I write on my hand oh. as I'm doing an interview because oh. I'll, want to come back to something later but one of the things you mentioned earlier and i actually i hope you don't mind me going down this rabbit hole is uh when you talked about games and gm-less games versus having a referee and it's been in the back of my mind for quite a while now that i think you know referees or dms gms have kind of been thrown under the bus over the like the last i don't know 10 15 years it's part of the 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 evolution of the product as like a turnkey product and and it doesn't serve it doesn't serve the gamers. What it serves is the corporation, you know? And I mean, I'm kind of, I have, I make no bones about the fact that I hope Wizards of the Coast burns to the ground at some point here. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I'm, I don't need you guys. I've got, I've got these, right? I bought these. And see, this is what I was saying, wanted to say about the traditional role playing or whatever we call this, this, you know, this, uh, the informal role playing maybe. Um, is that you don't it's it's always evolving it's not it's not an old style it's a it's a it's a condition that you're in when you're playing that kind of game and it is always evolving and it's always fresh and so in Thomas Borg a lot of people were like oh it's just like old school stuff and it's like there's stuff I invented like two years ago that I had never seen before um, 
like the magic finger lock trap. That yeah. was something I invented um, for a sci-fi game and then I used it in a fantasy game. Um, and so that's kind of a cool thing and it's nowhere in Tonisborg, but it's like you can put this in Tonisborg and you can upgrade your Tonisborg. Uh, and that's the other thing about the modular thing. Like this is not a module, you know, this wing um, product pitch. Um, it's not a module in the traditional terms or not even true. Well, yeah, since 19, since the seventies, when they started making modules, people wanted the pre-programmed thing. It is a, it is more like the original rules, which is a guidebook. And so we give you examples of things to spark you toward being in that mode of, I'm not using the rules. I'm using reasonable, the, the reasonable, what is it? Reasonable expectations creating reasonable results or it's an inverted yeah. equation one or the other it's like a you know it's like an algebraic equation you can put it on either side but um if you're playing under the assumption that everybody understands what reality is or the reality that's been created is then everybody has an understanding of what their expectations can be within that reality the story reality and and there, and so there are places where the referee can simply just say it is reasonable for this to happen under these circumstances. So when you do that, this is the result you get. And we don't need to roll any dice. I mean, as long as it's not like a life or death situation, like a combat or a trap, you can, the referee just carries the story forward. Um, and that was like, a, a, maybe I wrote that in that, that write-up, the Pathfinder game I was in, um, where suddenly the, you know, the, the iPads come out. Oh no, I was talking to people about, a lot of people want PDFs of the book. And I'm really against the idea of PDFs because the whole book is about going back to, <coughs> excuse me, traditional role-playing methods, right? So we're going to use books and we're going to use real dice and we're going to have pencils and we're going to have pieces of paper. Um, I was, I mean, we have a character sheet in there and people are really into character sheets, but whenever I, like my game group, you get a piece of paper and you write your stats down one side and then you figure out where you want to write your equipment. And then you write some other notes somewhere else and it's just a jumbled mess and that's the way we played right and so we still play that way um so the whole book is about getting back to this really seat of your pants we're just we don't need to buy the commercial product of the character sheet we don't need we don't need the official D, &D pencil from wizards of the coast right um our dice come from game science if you're if you're into dice you get game science dice i'm a big game science fan um um and uh so yeah so now you want to get it on a pdf and you want to bring your ipad to the game session and you want to run the game off of your ipad and i'm like like what are you doing you know like you you've totally lost the thread here this is about you know the 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 the, the method of delivery of the product is is also the method that you're going to deliver the thing to your players so uh i don't know i mean it's like you know yeah, I could go on and on about that. I get, I, yeah. it's weird because they, you know, I, I created this discussion and I tried to explain my perspective and I probably didn't do it very well, but I was like, you know, I'm an, I'm an artist. Okay. I'm a writer. Okay. So as a writer, I'm a kind of artist as the artist. I, this is like, I've decided to work in oils. Okay. No, we want you to do the Mona Lisa in charcoal. It's like, no, I want to do it in oils. And this is how you get it. You know, you don't get it as a PDF because I don't do PDF, not for my games. Um, and so I can maybe I come off like a really arrogant snob. It's like, oh, but all these people in Europe that want your thing and whatever. And it's like, well, 
you know, if they want a hard copy of anything, it's going to cost them more, you know, mm -hmm. and this is, and this is a, a singular book, you know, you're not going to, there, I, I mean, I don't, I haven't seen anything else that looks this good. Okay. Like, look at that, you know. Well, that and I was going to ask you about that. I saw you, I'm Canadian. I saw that you advertised it's Canadian paper that oh, you're yeah. using and printed in Denver. And it's uh, made out of Canadians, actually. <laughs> it's, it's kind of politically incorrect, but we actually use Canadians to make the paper. Anyway, go on. Well, we make the best paper. Bad joke. Yeah. No, you make the best paper, apparently, you know, or the cheapest. I don't know. You make good paper. It's, I mean, it's high quality paper. It's not garbage. It's, it's acid-free archival paper, you know. Go on. I was, I was curious about your, like, so the the business side of things, uh, when you went into this Kickstarter and probably, you know, I kept you over time here. So maybe we can talk about your Kickstarter a little bit. So you can, yeah. uh, your Kickstarter, you can get a um, soft cover. Uh, well, you know, that's funny because we're doing, okay, we're doing this. This is a, a really, this is the handbound, like the, the, the inside of the book, these, except for the purple sheets that are here, these guys, actually they look kind of blue in this light, yeah. it's the daylight, it's the daylight balance. Anyway, um, um, everything that's inside of it gets done by a printer, and the printer goes and sends boxes of these books to the binders. Um, the binders take these pages that are bigger than the pages and they chop off the excess and they put it into, um, you know, they glue it together into this, it's, uh, what's it called? Perfect binding is kind of the thing now. It's a mm -hmm. glued binding. Um, we debated do, whether doing hand sewing because we've got a company that can do that. I might have a couple copies hand sewn for myself. So I have like some beautiful, beautiful, like, you know, museum grade sort of things. Anyway, um, yeah, so the bind bindery then, then takes a metal plate there's actually a metal plate that they use that they stamp each i don't know if they bind it first and then stamp it or if they stamp it and then glue it i don't know what the process is there i would think maybe after but they bind it by hand you know and there's like three people that work there i mean it's like it's not like we can just shove these through the machine like you do with yeah. all the the print on demand so once the orders are in it you know where your order came in we try to do them by first come first serve um you'll get your book but it depends on when the people at the factory can actually make your book because it takes a while to make them um but yeah then you this thing with gold foil goes boop and puts this beautiful final piece on yeah um um, on the Kickstarter, the tiers are you can get a soft cover book and then a hard cover. Yeah, book. I was going to get to that. Yeah, okay. Um, so, so we have this hardbound, okay, yeah. which has this outer piece. The printer also makes the same, the exact same inner part, and just puts a paper cover on it, yeah. like a cardboard, a card cover. So that's the um, the the soft cover version. Um, people have been, I mean, it's not like we don't want to sell you books, right? Like the PDF thing, you know, people were like, the book's too expensive. Can't you sell it to me for $10? You know, it's like, I don't know, you know, like really, I just want to make pretty books. You know, I'd rather not, oops, there goes the camera. I'd rather not make really, um, I'd rather not do any, like, like for me personally, when, when Chris was like, we're going to do soft cover books, I was just like. <laughs> those are a lot of f words coming out yeah. that you can't hear and mm, um because i don't i didn't really want to do anything but hard bends because that's what i like um but then i saw the soft or i saw this one 
which we're thinking of doing. Like by the time your show comes out, we might have announced it. I might be pre-announcing it. We got we a scoop about this. Yeah, the scoop. And this is um, the difference is is that this would be like a much lighter grade paper, like a fifty pound. And um, like if you look at it, like you know, look at see what it's doing there. That's yeah. because I was I was testing it. So this is my personal test copy test print, and I was doing this to it, and mm -hmm. I was like. Like throwing it, it down on the ground. Yeah, I wanted to see what it can do, but it's got like little ding, like it came with little dings on the edges. Um, when I open it, like if you, you know, like here, I'm just gonna kind of jack it up a little bit, but see if you put your fingernail into it, you get, you get uh, like these. I don't know if you can see that, but yeah, they get <laughs> the paper stretches basically. Um, this is where I add patrimony because it's like I take my fingernail and I write griff you can't see it but it'll be imprinted there and so somebody will have yeah. this copy and be like that's the griff um um so yeah so we're looking at doing a like a really low-end version for anybody that wants to have this you know um i'm really against the whole pdf thing i just i just don't like it and i know a lot of people are really into it um and and i think that people need to like respect my artistic boundaries on how I want to deliver my what I'm doing like I used to do a lot you know I used to do a lot of experimental video art and it was done on tv sets and I've been thinking of getting back into like like what is it for uh, what is it 480 by by 640 or yeah 640 by 480 yeah 640 by 480 whatever yeah, yeah. um uh, I've been thinking of going back to that and finding some old tvs and and doing some uh video pieces and and being really like specific about like you can only watch this through glass, right? We're yeah. not going to project. We will. We will never project these videos. They will only be seen through glass, and the reason is is that it's like a different medium than a projector, right? Yeah. To me, it's a, it's a different experience when you look at glass than when you look at a projection or you look at a, a plasma screen. Yeah. Uh, plasma screens are very flat and, and and they're kind of fancy, but but you lose certain elements it's like the difference of like the kind of paper you print a photograph on yeah. so yeah well, i could go on and on about well ultimately it comes down to the experience you want to create for somebody and as an example yeah, yeah. like in some like i'm kind of like you i like old style stuff but at the same time I like some of the new technologies that can create a more immersive experience like you know um, for example a mothership adventure that has like the sos thing that you can play on your ipad it immediately puts people in the mood for the adventure at the beginning. And so there's elements of that. So I'm not, I'm not beholden to just doing certain things, but in this case, I can totally see why you'd want that very tangible yeah. handcrafted experience of like the book and what it means, because what it represents is something completely unique to uh, this older yeah. style of game. I mean, it's funny because, you know, before, I mean, everybody, the, the internet is just like a horrible place. And, and I mean, it was this magical dream, you know, we were going to share information, we we're going to have hyperlinks and, and, and we were going to make websites and the websites would have like, like you would mention somebody and there'd be a link to their website, you know, or something. And now everything is commercialized. So you end up in these cul-de-sacs, like, like you get, you know, you're on the Kmart site, they will never let you out of their site. You have to go back to the search engine to get to another site. And, yeah. um, and uh, anyway, yeah, I can talk about the toxicity <laughs> of the internet endlessly because I, I had devised the system for the, for doing like a social media that was a different approach and that, like you were going to ask me about what, you know, how did the game company come out? 
And that was, it came out of, I had these ideas. I'm, I'm not a great programmer because um, the semantics of programming just kill me, but I can do pseudocode and come up with weird ideas. So I had this system for doing uh, sort of a, a, a sharing ideas more creatively. Um, and it never really panned out. I kind of want to get back to it maybe. Like if we could get enough money together, I could pay somebody to program it for me, right? Um, but I don't have any money. Um, well, we're going to fix um, that. We're going to fix that by sending everybody to your Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just can you? Just and they're all going to want PDFs and be like, "You guys are jerks. You're <laughs> gatekeeping elitist snobbish jerks." And I don't like you. I'm never buying anything. Sorry. Go on. But but what are the prices for the soft and hard? And potentially you might not so, know yet for this uh, third version. Yeah, we've. Uh, you know, we brought the price down to a hundred dollars for the hardbound. Um, and when we got uh, the softbound that we, that we added in that I don't want, that I hate, that could burn on a fire um, is $60. But you can get a pair of books. So if you want to like put your hardbound in a bookshelf and never touch it or leave it sealed in plastic or something, um, you can have like the, the, uh, the, the perfect bound, nice one for $20 less as sort of an add-on in addition you know, to the other one. And then we're going to maybe do these. We don't know yet what the price point would be for these. We're thinking maybe 35 or something like that. And um, I mean, I don't know. It's like, these, you know, people, um, not, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gamer and I'm a game writer. I'm not a businessman. Um, so, so that kind of covers that. I'm trying to think of what else we're selling. The big thing is the art. We're doing an auction that's for the artists. And um, there isn't a lot of art up there. So it's really like, if you want to come in and buy some of the original art from this book, you can get it. Um, most of the stuff we have as original pieces are maps. So you could get a pencil drawn, like, you know, Mary McGarry spent hours transferring the original map to a pencil drawing that he's done um, by hand. And you could get an original David McGarry drawing, which you know, he was, David McGarry is a really significant game designer and you could get, like you could frame that and have an original dungeon map from McGarry. Um, and then we also have the Toby Lancaster drawings, which are the, the production drawings that we used in the book for sale. And those are interesting too, because even with McGarry working on the dungeon, we ran into flaws into where things are. I mean, it's so, it's so involved. Um, the, the number of stairwells is ridiculous. So there are some places where a stairwell didn't go to the right place or a door was missing. So I would just cut and paste it in the layout, you know, and move it over and yeah. Photoshop. Um, so the, the ones that you get from Toby Lancaster are unique because they're a little bit different and they don't have all the markings on them because I added those in later. Um, all the graphic stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. um, um, and then what else we got, uh, and then we also, when the Kickstarter is done, if you come into the Kickstarter now, um, you can enter it like $5 for the art and maps level or something like that. And, uh, we have a bunch of stuff that's just a set price, uh, print. And so we have some Ken Fletcher stuff and we have some, um, FSF Inc, which is Martin in, in Norway. And, um, we also have, I think 10 of level 10 that are signed prints of level 10 from uh, Toby Lancaster. So we're offering a lot of stuff, but the art thing is really the, the artists came in and, and hauled our butts out of a sling because we lost our original artist um, who's a really well-known artist and, and we lost him for a really, it was 
it was the typical, you know, it was the typical thing that happens on the internet where somebody gets blamed for something and called names and suddenly they, they, they're being erased from existence. And um, it, the, the, the comment that he made was completely taken out of context and people didn't understand it. Um, and I don't wanna go into politics at all, so I'm just not gonna do that, but we lost our artist. Um, and uh, so then we had to, we were just like, okay, so we've got this book. We were just about to lay it out. You know, we were just about to do all this, or, or we were about, kind of in the in the uh, editing, not really editing, just proofing and maybe a little bit of finessing. You know, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, you make game stuff, right? Yeah. How many games have you made? Like, I mean, does oh, just uh, just well, I've got probably eight on the go. Okay. <laughs> well, because I, I was That's talking the unfortunate to uh, part. Um, Paul Stormberg, you know, when I yeah. I told him like we're so close, and he was like. Yeah, you're at that 1% mark. And when you get to the 1% mark, that's when you have to do the most work. Like, yeah. you think you've done all the work, like all the, I've been writing and writing and I've done all this stuff. And then you get to the finishing point and, and you're like, you know, like I, I, we got the printed book back the first time I opened up a hardbound copy. I opened it, I looked at the page and I was like, there's a period missing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and you can't really stop that. But we were doing that kind of, the, I mean, that's, we hadn't done a book like that. Chris had done publishing before, but nothing on the level of this book, I don't think. He was yeah. doing magazines. And so magazines, it's like, yeah, you avoid the accidents, but they get in there, whatever. You know, you write a disclaimer yeah. in the next issue. You know, like, oh, sorry, we call that painter snot face, but that's not really his name. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> move on. Um, so, yeah. Um, but that, yeah, that one percent is tough to do, especially with uh, yours, which is not PDF, right? I mean, it's like permanent, right? So you got to get it right, yeah, and it's tough yeah. to finesse that last little bit. And often, even oh, when you finish it, you yeah. look at it again and go, "Oh, we can improve upon it." So we were in that stage, and we had our artist, and we had all this amazing art. Um, I regret that we don't have that artist's art in it because it is it is phenomenal. There's this one piece that's just like the most amazing thing i actually purchased it from the artist because i was like this is some of the most amazing dnd art i've ever seen and um um so these artists were like oh we can help you out and so they just jumped on board and they didn't you know they, they're not getting paid millions of dollars in some cases people sent us stuff and they were just like yeah you know you can use this it's it's something i use somewhere else but you can license it and reuse it um and that's kind of our approach too is that from a business perspective, like we want to be fair to our artists. And so when it comes to artwork, my preference is just to license the artwork and, and you know, figure out whatever it costs to just use it. And then they can keep it and they can resell it to somebody else. They can license it to somebody else. They can do whatever they want, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's kind of a cool idea is like, what if some of this Thomas Borg art is relicensed and it comes up in another person's game book, right? Yeah. What do I care? It's cool. It's a great art. It needs to be out there. It'll get out there even more, right? And so it's good for the artists. And then at the same time, they have their originals. They own their originals, and they can sell their originals. And you know, I mean, artists need to make money, and so we need to come up with good ways for them to make money. Um, so some of the artists, when we did the Kickstarter, we just put out a message: if you want to do, if you want to see if you can sell some art, how in whatever form, you know, you can you can be part of this Kickstarter. Um, it's just that Kickstarter has not changed their uh, interface in years. Yeah. And uh, so uh, 
there are a lot of like if you're trying to do something really weird like we are there's no method for doing that so we're doing an auction well the auction has to be on our website and we have to we had to get a, an auction widget to run the auctions through our website and then we've got um these packages that are, are changing the shipping costs of things but we have no way to add it in the only way to add in the shipping to make it reasonable for us is so that we're not losing money um because none of the money for the art comes to us it just goes straight to the artist we're not taking a penny um and so the only way to do that was to go again on to backer kit where you have a little bit more control over shipping costs and stuff like that yeah um um so yeah i mean i don't know it, it's interesting because i do know we've been looking at kickstarter and, and if you dig in there we've discovered that we're like a favored favored creator and mm -hmm. we're like, really so we looked at our profile and it's like oh these guys have already done you know they've completed two kickstarters and they're on another one we looked at some famous person's thing and uh it was like this is a person that has done four Kickstarters but never completed any of them. Yeah, you know, it's like. Do you remember the pencil dice debacle? Actually, I, I don't, but I know Kickstarter okay. and their recommendations are to me always a little bit murky as to how they're selected and uh, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, I've been looking at a couple of RPG ones, and and I think it's a huge mistake for people to get on there without a product in, in at least a prototype stage. Yeah. Right. And so um, a lot of people, you know, people come on board because it feels like, oh, these people seem like nice people. It feels good. I'm going to I'm going to support them. They don't have a prototype. They don't have anything. They have an incredible marketing department. Right. And so they show you all this great art and you're going to have like, you know, whatever, all these amazing things, flying ships and dragons with like yeah. flared nostrils like this. And then you get to the point of doing it and they're like, oh, well, yeah, uh, we didn't realize this was going to be hard. This is hard, you know, producing yeah. an RPG. In our case, it took us, you know, it's like from completion to completion of the Kickstarter might have been three years. We didn't, it took us a while to, to deliver on the Kickstarter books because we were doing them at the same time as we were doing a feature film. Yeah. Okay. Feature film is like, you have no idea how big a project that is if you've never done one it's just it's huge well, and uh mine and so only, at the same mine was only 60 I'm, minutes but yeah it uh it uh totally you know what i'm talking about yeah, though. yeah. and i had it's like gigantic. 24 hours of footage to go comb through and edit down to like 60 minutes yeah it's um, full. um and then so yeah i mean so i you know my big thing is just telling people like look at our track record we we do not we do not start a Kickstarter until we have at least a, a draft that we can work off. We weren't inventing anything. We're just refining what we've got. And so we've got something that's ready, that's almost ready to go. Um, my only question is kind of like, well, I mean, it's hard to know, like uh, as a game company, I mean, you're a game company, you're, a, you're, you're doing what I do. You make movies and you make games. And so as a game company, um, we don't really have a lot of access to demographics, and so we don't really know what our audience wants, um, which is kind of makes us better than, than the evil Satan Wizards of the Coast, because Wizards of the Coast is doing everything based on, um, you know, focus groups and crap yeah. like that. So you're getting product that is designed for the lowest common denominator. It's like it's designed the way they design dog food packaging, you know, <laughs> you're getting dog food for your RPG from them. 
And um, and so, and I've heard all their adventures are horrible. You, the only ones that are good are the ones done by gamers, for gamers. And the reason is that you've got a million gamers out there designing what they think is cool. And then the people who buy the things will look through them and it's just like, this one's cool, right? And so it's just kind of this organic process that creates what's good and what's bad, which is really, you know, the best way to run your market anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, like, right, like, uh, you know, I, I, one of your questions that you, you, you were going to ask me, I know, was where are you going with this, yeah. you know, as far as what's, what's in the plans for the future. So I thought I'd mention it um, since I'm heading that way. Um, so, yeah, now we don't really know where we're not really sure where to go with our next product. Chris is kind of like, well, it seems like the fantasy thing is what people want. So maybe you should continue writing your Blackmore book you're working on. Um, but I kind of am excited. I really want to do a book that focuses that, that is like a treatise on, uh, role-playing elements within war games and has like a war game. We have a war game we'd like to publish, but we could publish it with that. And then we could also publish a lot of the old artifacts that we have, like paper ephemera stuff, like, um, maybe publish the different editions of Strategos in it as like sort of an appendix. Um, and then do a whole section on the different elements that you can use to create fog of war and to create something that's a little bit more of a role-played war game, right? Where your commanders, you can do anything. You can even put your commander in another room with a map. And somebody just comes in and says, here's the battle report. You know, the troops that went up that road have encountered stiff opposition. You know, these guys they went into the forest we don't we think they're stuck in a marsh or something out there we're not really <laughs> sure like you know you can play it like that or yeah. or you get you can get more rigid screech feel like and get chess gamey but um something like that um what else would i want to do i mean i really want to do that chris is kind of like i don't know how many we can sell of that you know like and i'm like well yeah but we sell 100 hardbounds it's still a good book right it's still pretty you know yeah um um, and then we also have um, several games that have never been published. Um, there's, I mean, I don't want to talk bad about anybody from the early days. I will just say that there was a science fiction game that was sent to TSR very early on. They had that manuscript and then they produced a game that was almost identical early on as their own game and, and didn't publish that manuscript. So we have a copy of that. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, there's a, I mean, and then we have a sci-fi uh, role-playing game. They had the manuscript. They never returned it. Interestingly enough, a couple of years later, they created their own sci-fi game. Um, and we, David McGarry, had a printout that he found when Adventure Games was closing down. He just grabbed it. He didn't know what it was. And um, it was called Starmaster. And so that's the third in the, the John Snyder, uh, Star Probe, Star Empire, and Star Master game system which follows the same prototype as Blackmore. Like, uh, that's a whole other discussion. You know, I could go down mm -hmm. that rabbit hole for another 45 minutes. But um, so we have that, which um, because it was on printouts, we're having a, a uh, what is it called? An OCR? Uh, uh, Optical character recognition? Yeah, yeah. OCR, uh, an OCR yeah. copy done. And so the AI is sort of being programmed to understand that particular manuscript on that printout. Um, and so we've been just working to get an OCR of that, regardless of whether we publish it or not. But um, I found when we interviewed John, he just gave us his entire game collection. 
And, uh, um, and so I, uh, amongst those things was, were pieces of his manuscript for, for the game, which are not in the McGarry draft. And so I have rules for handguns, for like laser guns, which he was using in his D&D campaign because it was a hybrid sci-fi fantasy thing, which Blackmore is a hybrid. It's sword and planet hybrid, mm-hmm. um, like all the great early, uh, early campaigns. Um, and so I also have, like there was a little manuscript about this thick printout paper. It might've been hand typed actually paper and it's his monster manual for his space game. And so that's really significant too, because when Traveler came out, they didn't really, they didn't really go into the alien races. It was a really weird game in a certain way because Mm -hmm. it didn't really provide any sort of, everything was sort of generic something. I guess we're all humans, you know? And, um, and, and it's sort of interesting because I, I've met, well, Mark's a great guy. Like, you know, I'm not going to say anything bad about Mark because he's a great guy. But um, it's, he's a very uh, uh, upstanding, good guy. You know, he's, he, I, I think he's a fairly devout Christian. But when you play Traveler, half the time you're playing criminals. Like, almost always you're like going <laughs> on some raid somewhere to like do in, you know, it's, it's yeah. so it's sort of funny, you know, but, it, but he, he, he didn't really put, I think they've added in all their alien races since, but it wasn't there from the inception. And so um, that's the interesting thing about Snyder's piece. Um, the guy that's been working on the OCR of that is just like, yeah, this is basically, even if you don't play this game, the, the resources within the charts and stuff, because he, like John is, John is another one of those geniuses in their game group that was like, you know, an unsung hero, like nobody goes to interview John, we did, right, for our movie, because it's like, yeah, we got to talk to the guy that was that played in, in their games, you know, and um, yeah, I don't know, I mean, we got that, you know, and and then, and that is mentioned by Arneson in his fanzine corner tabletop, I believe in 1973, so <clears throat> around 1973 is when John started writing it, uh, talking to Bob Meyer and he was saying like, oh yeah, we almost immediately when we got into that cam- campaign, we were playing a role-playing game. Okay. So it's probably the very first sci-fi RPG ever. Yeah, that's cool. Because I actually had uh, Mark Miller as a guest on the show. Uh, I'll put a link uh-huh. up above. But uh, so that came out in 77. Um, and so 73 would predate that by four years. And uh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. To see. I hope you guys follow through with that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just a matter of we only have the uh, we have very limited resources. We aren't the giant mega corporation, satanic Nazi. Um, <laughs> the that uh, I don't care anymore. You know, like I don't buy their products. Yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not a Nazi yeah. fan, but Hasbro, yeah. whatever. Okay. Um, well, we'll, I like we'll, that. We'll, we'll see what happens with the, that one D and This could be one of those uh, moments that uh, I'm rooting like an for asteroid it. for the dinosaurs. Yeah, well, it's gonna if it it could obliterate. I mean, they're trying to move their entire market to this computer platform thing, and it's like we're role players, man. We sit at tables, we get Cheeto dust all over our faces, and drink, you know, soda, get drunk on sugar, and and roll dice, right? Um, What they're trying to, hmm? they might lose the plot on. Exactly. They're trying they to dip into the Warcraft crowd, and it's like, yeah. great, go go fight Warcraft, 
you know, go fight that company. I don't know. Maybe they already own it because they own everything else. But you guys can fight it out over there. I think it's going to be wonderful if they get out of the tabletop business because that's going to make people like us, right? We're going to become top dogs. And I don't mean like we have to dominate the market, but suddenly you're going to have more gamers going like, gosh, I really want a physical copy of something that I can roll dice with. Yeah. Um, with my friends around the table and they're going to start looking for little companies that are doing good work um and so it'll be good for everybody that's in that's do, that's yeah. in indy like well like, it's just to, great it's just can, great like yes D one to continue the analogy it's like the dinosaur is an asteroid and then we're the little mammals crawling out of the uh the rodents that yeah yeah out of the rocks and <laughs> yeah i call it D own because yeah. they're going to own like like you're going to spend money to buy things on the internet that don't exist. And so you're, they're, they're going to own you, you know, you're, yeah. you're going to be their well, little, I can't well, say what I was going to say next. Yeah. Well, um, I, we could probably go down it for hours and hours. And so I'll ask you this, can you come back on the show and we'll talk more about like all the kind of philosophical mm -hmm. discussions around role-playing uh, beyond just the yeah i'd love to you know i'm board. always glad to talk to people about gaming i mean I, I love gaming this is my favorite piece of art in the book nice who did yeah. that one this one is uh martin and uh, fsf inc he does great stuff you know um we have a couple you know like I don't know. We have a, a really diverse group of artists. I hate to use that word diverse because then you're just talking about people as like tokens. Yeah. But they're, they are the, the artwork is diverse, you know. Um, you know, the, this is an old, this is a Ken Fletcher from 1974. Um, and it's a bunch of adventurers standing in the middle of a room with all these things coming at them. And yeah. uh, the caption is Fortunately, I brought along my copy of the Junior Woodchuck Handbook, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, that one's a Ken Fletcher. Um, this one, I forgot her name, but that one's kind of a nice one. The Girl Hobbit. Kind yeah. of nice. This is very different from most of our other art. Um, we've got, I mean, that's the thing is I love the art in the book. And um, um, we managed to squeeze in a fair amount of art and still, you know, not overdo it um there are funny little things like these here these dragons with the layout wasn't really working because the charts were so big and they're yeah. taking up half a page and so i just sat down with, with a ballpoint pen and drew like these little dragons and, <laughs> and then i flipped them and made like a little like a little uh yeah. ribbon type thing as a um what they call that clip art kind of dragon flip art um so yeah, we got just a bunch of different artists, a bunch of different styles of art. Um, there's a comic book artist out of Canada who I always like to support his comic book. He's um, Vaughn Allen does, um, I don't remember the name of his comic book, but vaughnallen.com. You can go there and you can uh, then go online and buy his comic book, which I think is a great comic book. I mean, like, I'm not saying that just to be like, go spend money with him. Uh, it's very indicative of like, if you like the old, like, Tantan, the old French comic books from like the 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. It's very, very much in that style, but upgraded. But still, mm -hmm. it has something reminiscent of that era of old comic books from yeah. like European style comic books. And so I think it's kind of unique like that. Um, cool. um, 
Yeah. What else? Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, We've, how long so, have we been going? I mean, well, like, I think almost two hours. Yeah, but, nobody's going to watch this. There's well, you're going to have no viewers. Are they're you gonna kidding? Look at, That's everybody loves me like, for him. Look at that hairy guy. Change the channel. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I should have bathed no, first. We're we're good. So, okay. I'm going to put links to uh, your website um, and your Kickstarter. And uh, let's get, and uh, I'm going to send it out uh, as part of my uh, newsletter and we'll, we'll get the word out okay. as best we can. And yeah. I'll, I'll post it to all my like, yeah. like social stuff. Yeah. My, so cool. my toxic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My dangerous interfaces. Yeah. yeah. But okay. uh, I'd love to have you back at a, at a future date and we can talk more about okay. game, game design philosophy and all that kind of stuff. But uh, in, the, in the meantime, I just want to say, you know, thanks for joining me and uh, thanks for all the work you've done uh, for secrets of oh, Blackmore sure. in the sure. past and all the, the history that you've archived. And uh, just, I'm sure a lot of people appreciate it just like me. Well, and, and the thing about that, like what we're doing, you know, we're not, I, I see a lot of Kickstarters and I think that people are just sort of like cashing in, right? You got a game, you're cashing in. A lot of small companies, I'm not saying we're the only ones that do it, but it's like, we need resources to let leverage doing the other things we want to do. Like we can't just do it, you know? Um, and so, um, so when you buy something like a tonus board from us, it means like you can get, oh yeah, there was a Dave Arneson never published gangster RPG with maps and art and everything wow. that we could do um um yeah there's just like so much stuff we have like um i could go on and on about all the stuff like we have never published game stuff by by important designers and we want to get it out there you know so yeah i mean if you if you get a tonus board book i know they're high end i just like to do really nice editions so that it's like your your ad and d books like it will last you you know, if you have an AD&D book and you weren't a jerk with it, it's still in pretty good shape, right? This is the same sort of thing. And um, um, so if you if you buy a book, you're kind of supporting our project to, to leverage getting other uh, unknown things out there. So that's my big show. Cool. Well, thanks again. And I look forward to seeing uh, my own version in my hand someday soon. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right. I hope it lives up to expectations. Like I built it up so much, you're gonna be like, <laughs> "I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will." Thank, thanks, Griff. Yeah. All right. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>